Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 8, Flying for a Rogue Airline, Part 2. Alba was in a bit of a predicament. Long and Harmon, the two owners of a startup airline in Texas, were refusing to comply with Decision 83. Decision 83 was the edict from the National Labor Board, or NLB, that required airlines to compensate their pilots based on both the mileage and the time that they flew. However, the NLB could only enforce its edicts through the courts, a lengthy, uncertain, and expensive process. The post office, which held the airmail contract with Long and Harmon, had no way of enforcing the law other than outright cancellation of Long and Harmon's mail contract. Cancellation was not a viable alternative for ALPA because it would result in putting the pilots out of work. Then Long and Harmon made a fatal, unforced error. On the kind of August day, when the sun will fry an egg on a Texas runway, H.E. Harmon summoned all of his pilots to a meeting in a stuffy room in the airline's Dallas headquarters. He told them that as of August 31st, they were all fired, but he offered each of them re-employment if they would agree to work for a flat monthly rate. Of the pilots working for Long and Harmon at the time, only the Ford qualified pilots were relatively secure the single-engine pilots would be willing to scab. Anti-union sentiment was so strong in Dallas and organized labor was so weak at that time that employers habitually flaunted their union-busting activities. Despite all of this, the Long and Harmon pilots decided to fight. The burning sense of righteous indignation over promises broken and good work left unappreciated made them ripe for ALPA. Meanwhile, ALPA President Dave Banke had other problems. He was trying to run ALPA almost single-handedly. Banke was spending time in Washington to ensure that the pilot pay provisions of Decision 83 would be included in the new permanent airmail legislation that Congress was considering. He was also trying to hold down a job with United, flying a regular route between Chicago and Omaha. As a result, Banky told Long and Harmon pilot Lewis Turner to begin negotiations by himself, without waiting for help from headquarters. This came as a shock to the pilots. They knew that if they became publicly identified as union troublemakers, they would probably be fired and could expect no sympathy or support in conservative Dallas. But still, right was right and they decided they couldn't let Long and Harmon get away with this. Turner called a meeting of all the pilots, and after lengthy discussions, they all agreed that the least vulnerable pilots, the tri-motor pilots, should be up front. Although Maurice Case sympathized with his fellow pilots, he disliked unions and steadfastly refused to join ALPA. If Kay acquiesced to Long and Harmon, the airline could continue to operate the Ford, since it required only a single qualified pilot. 
But if they all stood together, they could ground the airline and perhaps force Long and Harmon to obey the law. After many agonizing meetings, Kay finally agreed to go along and even to act as the spokesman, although he still refused to join the union. It was a courageous act, undertaken with the hope that Long and Harmon might at least listen to their only non-Alpa Ford pilot. They hoped in vain, however, because not only did Harmon refuse to meet with Kay, he also insisted that all the pilots sign their contracts before reading them. It is clear from subsequent investigations by federal agencies, most notably the post office, that Long and Harmon knew their course of action was illegal. But Long's behavior has never been explained. Understandably, he needed to cut costs. But to do so by reducing pilot salaries, which was clearly unlawful, seems inexplicable. In any case, Harmon began searching for another Ford pilot. He found one by the name of George E. Halsey. Halsey was deemed a professional strikebreaker by ALPA because he had previously scabbed for E.L. Cord's Century Airlines. Upon hiring Halsey, Long and Harmon fired Maurice Kay, George Hayes, and Lewis Turner outright. The single-engine pilots then caved and signed contracts. At this point, Banky had no choice but to drop everything else and devote his full attention to the Long and Harmon affair. Because he now had little interest in what happened to the turncoats working for the airline, Banky asked the post office to cancel its mail contract and, at the same time, brought the cases of Kay, Hayes, and Turner before the National Labor Board. Shortly thereafter, both the post office and the Commerce Department announced formal investigations of Long and Harmon. By early October, both Long and Harmon were seriously worried, despite all their tough talk. ALPA's Washington representative, Edward Hamilton, had interested Senator Hugo Black in the airline's case. Senator Black was the one responsible for the original airmail contract cancellations. Hamilton poured all of his efforts into this case because as one of the former century strikers who had not yet managed to get a flying job, he felt a deep sense of kinship with the strikers. There was also a general fear that if Long and Harmon got away with defying Decision 83, other airlines would follow its example, as it was a deliberate setup just for that purpose. But thanks to Eddie Hamilton's activities in Washington, Long and Harmon did not get away with it. Hamilton managed to get Senator Black to personally take up the matter with Postmaster General Farley, who, knowing the president's wishes that wages of airline pilots be guaranteed, had no choice but to crack down. From then on, the blows against Long and Harmon fell heavy and fast. A regional labor board meeting in Fort Worth ordered reinstatement for Hayes and Kay and three months back pay to Turner who by then had found another job. A lawyer, representing Long and Harmon, denied that the three pilots had been fired for union activity, citing several other reasons, but the NLB report ruled otherwise. Then, the post office opened formal hearings in Washington, during which Long and Harmon 
was asked to show cause as to why its airmail contract should not be canceled for violations regarding pilot pay. Alpa sent its lawyer, Lionel Thorsness, to the November hearings, and in one of his first uses of a full-time staff member outside of Chicago, Banky sent Jack Oates to Dallas, where he took depositions from all Long and Harmon pilots. Thorsness was able to make good use of those depositions, which clearly showed the airline's attempt to reduce pilot salaries. Long and Harmon's lawyer countered that its reduction of pilot wages was undertaken as, quote, a service to taxpayers, unquote, and threatened to challenge the constitutionality of the pilot pay provisions in the courts. After a day-long recess, Alpa's lawyer persuaded Representative James Meade of New York to testify. As chairman of the powerful House Post Office Committee that approved the post office budget, he was somebody to whom post office officials would listen. Meade explained to the postal investigators that the purpose of the pilot pay provision, as embodied in Decision 83, was intended to help operating companies by taking this fixed cost into consideration. Faced with this kind of overwhelming pressure, the post office investigators formally ordered Long and Harmon to comply by January 15, 1935, or face cancellation of its contract. The final post office report, issued in December 1934, condemned the company for willful disregard of the law. Furthermore, in answer to Long and Harmon's threat to appeal the constitutionality of Decision 83 on the grounds that it was an unwarranted expense to the taxpayers, the Post Office declared that it was never the intention of the government to achieve such savings through contracts from those seeking profit off of the cost of labor. Even though victory was all but assured for Banky and Alpa, Long and Harmon continued to operate while willfully ignoring the National Labor Board and edicts from the Post Office and the Commerce Department. All the while, they were conducting feverish negotiations with Braniff and American to sell the route that they would surely lose on January 15th. Long and Harmon was effectively an outlaw airline, but that didn't help its courageous three musketeers. Banky's nickname for the trio of K, Hayes, and Turner. Lewis Turner did not seem interested in returning to flying. At the age of 39, he was considered somewhat over the hill by the standards of that day. Receiving the highest civilian award for heroism, the Air Mail Pilot Medal of Honor, did not make Turner any more employable. He eventually went home to Louisiana where he took up farming until his death in 1939. For George Hayes, the outcome was far more tragic. He had been flying with American for a few years, flying the Fokker F-10, and left after the airmail cancellations. George Hayes was living with his parents in St. Louis. With a young wife to support, falling back on his parents must have been humiliating even though the Great Depression was putting a lot of people out of work through no fault of their own. But still, many felt guilty. There were probably other things eating at George Hayes, too. 
he was having no luck finding a job. And despite the special fund Banky set up to support the Long and Harmon strikers, an early form of pilot assistance, he probably felt abandoned and felt that standing up for his rights had left him an outcast, perhaps forever blacklisted by the airlines as a troublemaker. Banky's letters assuring Hayes that Alpa was using its influence to find him a job were a poor consolation in those troubled times. Eventually, George Hayes broke. One day, he went out to his car, parked in the front yard of his parents' St. Louis home, sat down behind the steering wheel, put a pistol to his temple, and pulled the trigger. And what of Long and Harmon? They succeeded in unloading their route to Braniff. On January 1, 1935, Braniff assumed all of Long and Harmon's obligations to the post office under the contract. Unpunished by the post office permit, with no satisfactory explanation, some old-timers were known to mutter that perhaps there had been something to Long's boast that he had the fix in with some high official in Washington. Despite the paper gains Alpa achieved in the wake of the airmail crisis of 1934, most working pilots came to realize, as a result of the Long and Harmon affair, that a determined, unscrupulous employer could turn victory into ashes unless there was a more effective way to enforce compliance with the law. The professional livelihood earned by today's airline pilot was paid for in part by the sacrifices like those of Kay, Hayes, and Turner, Alpa's first martyrs. They had no intention of becoming heroes. They were simply ordinary pilots who just wanted to work. But they met the challenge and paid the price. And they should not be forgotten. Thank you for listening. This has been the second part of Chapter 8 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2019. All rights reserved. <laughs>